Welcome back to season two of Buff Speak. I hope that you enjoyed our first season, which featured 25 episodes with thought leaders from a variety of backgrounds. I'm Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host on Buff Speak, and today's episode is one of numerous special editions of the pod to look forward to this academic year. Thanks for tuning in and let's get rolling. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Babb, the Stan Sigmund Professor here in the College of Business. Dr. Babb will be joining me as co-host for a number of special episodes this season in which we focus on innovation as well as the Stan Sigmund Lecture Series of which he is chair. Jeff, tell us who you are, where you've been, and what you're up to these days. Thanks, Nick. Hi. So, I'm, yeah, I'm Jeffrey Babb. I'm, uh, who am I? Well, I'm me, but... I'm originally from Hawaii, although I wasn't born there. <clears throat> it's interesting as that's an important distinction to make if you grow up there. Can't claim um, to, to have born, been born there if you weren't. But I lived there up to 25, went to the University of Hawaii there. I did things you might expect a young person in Hawaii would do, surfed and those sorts of things. Played in plenty of rock bands, so I had you know a good, good youth. It's a good place to be young, I'll be honest. Moved to uh, Richmond, Virginia after that, um, just with work and be closer to family. And I pretty much did the rest of my education at Virginia and Commonwealth University. So two master's degrees and a PhD to show for there. And they can't, you, you can't stay, you have to, you, you get kicked out of the nest, you know, in academia. So I was an instructor there for a long time. That's what I mean by getting kicked out of the nest. But once I completed the terminal degree, you know, I could have stayed as an instructor, but if I wanted to get on to, you know, you get a PhD to, ostensibly joined the tenure track in most cases, right? So I came to West Texas A&M University, when was that, in 2009, I think, um, around there. And I've been here ever since. Richmond's a great place to be. I, I was fortunate to visit there a year ago and had a blast doing some photography. Lots of American history there. Yeah, no question. And it's interesting is um, the turn of <clears throat> recent political events more broadly in the discourse of the nation is caused a lot of the the history um, to be modified. Basically, there's a, a, um, a road there called Monument Avenue, and, you know, there was a Robert E. Lee statue and all those sorts of things. So um, there's not a Robert E. Lee statue anymore, but that was an interesting um, preservation of a time in history. But it's an old, old city. I've always done a thing where when I move to a new city or area, I'll try to find a good representative book on it. So when I read the representative book on the you know, Richmond area in Virginia, well, that goes way back, you know, to basically people from Europe being here. And I read the uh, history of from around here and, you know, people were barely living here. In fact, really not living here at all about 150 years ago. That was basically, I don't even think uh, Native Americans were living here as a permanent settlement. So it's interesting to see a hyper young place versus um, a really, you know, going way back place. No, I've I've known you long enough here at WT, like pretty much from day one, and so I consider you part of the old guard now, certainly in the upper half of faculty in terms of seniority. How has WT shaped you as a professor through these years? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I came in as a part of, and I've had this conversation with you, as a part of a, a growth mode 
I would almost say, I think it's fair to say, although this is probably perhaps not being fair to decades of people prior, but, uh, Neil Terry was the Dean, um, hadn't been the Dean for too long when I was hired. And I think there was definitely a push to level the college up and the target for that leveling up would have been the day ACSB accreditation. And so I think there was a lot of growth and maturing, you know, of, of colleagues, of programs. I know that the um, computer science and um, computer information systems programs had had a, a separating, basically a schism where, you know, computer science went elsewhere. So it was a time of regrowth, not only for the college, but a time of regrowth for even the department. So sometimes it's good to get on the ground floor. It's risky. I didn't know at the time, you know, but it's good to be part of what I would call a reshaping. You know, and I think, um, I know you and I have uh, looked at um, things about the college together in the last year in, in service to the college. And it feels like we're at the a, a similar inflection point at the moment where, you know, maybe we're heading off to, you know, whatever next chapters might be in store for the college. So I think I got to come, I was shaped by the college going through a full cycle of whatever its next chapter was at the time. So how, <clears throat> how and when did you become the Stan Sigmund professor? Right. Uh, and for this one, I had to make sure I took notes. Um, so I was approached by the dean. You know, uh, our current dean, Dr. Abdullah, had become the dean shortly after Dr. Terry became the provost, right? So that, that was a succession there. And um, Stan Sigmund, um, who I know we're going to get to in a second, but he basically had passed away, um, you know, unexpectedly um, um, at the conclusion of 2020. And, um, those that really wanted to, you know, were obviously, they were shattered by it, but wanted to honor, um, Stan Sigmund's memory and legacy, um, very quickly got together as the friends of Stan Sigmund and provided some support to the university that would, you know, allow, um, for scholarships, professorships and any other related activities that I think would have been useful to preserve that, you know, Stan, um, I know we're going to get to in a second, but you know, Stan was very much connected to the institution. And so I was uh, approached by the Dean and said, you know, there's an opportunity and this is the direction I want you to go into. And I said, sounds great. So yeah, tell <clears> us <throat> a little bit about Stan Stigman and, and what's his connection to WT? Sure. So this one I had to be the most prepared for, but I'll go ahead and actually just go through some bullets I prepared. So he's a 1970 WT graduate. Um, it's, it just says bachelor of science. So my, my, um, my uh, sleuthing, if you will, um, ashamed. I guess I should be ashamed of this, but I haven't completely undercovered the actual major. But I'm, I'm, but, but nonetheless, he's a WT alum, and um, he worked his way up. He had a job here in the area uh, at Southwestern Bell, and there was a warehouse they had in Hereford, and so real, um, you know, humble beginnings. Basically, I know that somewhere along the way on his um, journey up to the company. Um, a speaker that we had for the series last year had brought some video clips with him and Stan was on horseback being featured as a lineman um, up here in the panhandle. And, you know, those very much in keeping with his persona. So I would say, um, and everybody who got to know him, he was a very much dyed in the wool product of the area in every sense of the word. And I think that folks found that fascinating. And there's a lot of intermediary steps I'll, I'll go ahead and fast forward through. But, you know, at the at the conclusion of his journey with AT&T, although, you know, there's some history as to why we we're seeing Southwestern Bell, you know, and I'll, I'll be getting to that. But um, 
he ended up in the mobility area as the president and chief executive officer. And AT&T is a large animal, so it might make sense for us to just say AT&T. And there's some truth to that, but there's a lot of moving pieces to who they are. And there's some historical reasons why. Um, <clears throat> at one point, though, his connection to WT, other than being alum, is that recognizing his ascendance and being proud of local boys done good, you know, WT had um, honored him as a distinguished alumni. Um, he's very much connected to um, support and donations to the university in various, at various capacities. Uh, he and his wife, you know, have a namesake uh, space over in the new ag building. And, and he was a part of that. Um, so, you know, he's very active in support of WT, but let me um, segue over to, you asked who he was. And I think some parts, some parts about why did he have ascendant career? I have some good notes on here. So the most important thing to bear in mind is that, in his journey from starting with uh, AT&T up until 1982, um, that was uh, um, AT&T as we know it today was a behemoth. And so you might have heard the phrase baby bills. The idea would be, and there's a lot of this going on in the latter half of the 20th century, a lot of uh, looking into forestalling monopolies and, and that sort of thing, right? There was probably a more willingness to do that than might be the case today. You know, we let airlines merge to the point where they're quasi monopolies in other areas, but the trend at that time was different. So in the breakup of them, the BB bells into a lot of other um, um, names we'd understand, but AT&T, which is definitely a very longstanding um, name, um, you know, basically now became fabric, not fabricated, but um, fractured is the word I'm looking for. So basically the best way to describe how that turn of events probably affected his career is I'll kind of do it through maybe a little bit of storytelling. So you and I are having a conversation the other day. So I'll put, pose this to you and anybody listening. How and why is it that you can easily travel to London from Amarillo and so in any stops along the way and seamlessly access wireless voice and data networks? That is a miracle of our age. And frankly, you know, I've experienced it. I know you have, and maybe anybody else listening has. It's magic. And of course, the devices we hold in our hands are so powerful. But even if it's, you know, the laptop you have in front of you, well, that's not accidental. And it actually took a lot of overcoming the fracturing in the industry that was probably a result of that initial spinoff of trying to demonopolize, right? So um, some of the friends of Stan Sigmund reminded me that Stan's innovation was largely on areas of, well, how does intercarrier billing work in this circumstance where you can go to London seamlessly? How do the roaming agreements work? You know, how they actually handshake and agree to let you tra traverse territories because these are all radio towers. They're, you know, they're, there's a physical plan involved with them. Somebody owns them. You know, it's not just magic. Um, and then how is it that just the standards of wireless communication that these devices use are interoperable? So, you know, you and I are both old enough to, to know the reference of Betamax and VHS. Well, those problems had to be solved. You know, today it might be iPhone versus um, Android, but actually there's no problem because they will both communicate to the networks in near seamless ways. You know, the networking standards across the globe are still different, but they have a way to handshake and interoperate. So when we go up to LTE and all these other acronyms to talk about just advances in that technology, they had to be orchestrated. And so 
basically Stan's leadership was very influential on that. Because of that leadership, it's still the case that the U.S. is considered to be a leading innovator in the area of wireless um, communications. So it wasn't just that Stan's, you know, right time, right place, right person benefited AT&T. A lot of things we find normative in the industry are from those initiatives and efforts. And really just the, the push and persistence towards getting it right probably keeping the customer experience in mind. And I know definitely that's the received lore from everybody who speaks about Stan Sigmund of what was the magic. A lot of it was leadership and putting teams together, but a lot of it was persistence to a vision. You know, well, we, we got to get it done. As a less lasting legacy to what he set in motion here, I, I experienced it just this summer. No sooner had the wheels hit the tarmac in Costa Rica, I flip my phone off of airplane mode and then I get a text mm -hmm. message from AT&T mm -hmm. welcoming me mm -hmm. to Costa Rica and right. telling me that I've got unlimited mm -hmm. voice, text and data. And in fact, I've got the whole Western Hemisphere have fun. Right, right. And then that's that. So it's a miracle of our age. I mean, I think this is why you have digital nomads today. I mean, it really is knowing that you can get into another environment and you're still connected. But wirelessly, it's a different game. And, and, and honestly, I mean, I'll get to that a little bit later. But so I'll just conclude. These are kind of more prepared things. But the the pinnacle of this in terms of how the public would understand Stan Sigmund's role would be if you're in a rich country, relatively speaking, you're probably using an Apple device. The market share is is more profound um, in those. Um, so. Uh, when you know, we had mobile connectivity prior to the current era of mobile devices, but the current era is arguably started around 2006, seven, and then all the way up to the introduction of the iPhone um, in that era, you know, six, seven, eight into nine. Well, that presaged what we know is the current era of mobile devices and their capabilities and all that. So, particularly with the iPhone rollout, which given the way Apple operates was going to be a big splash and it's been effective. You know, it's a very strong company, both AT&T and Apple are strong companies or Alphabet or, or you know, whatever the, <laughs> I'll just say Apple. Um, and I might have that wrong. Maybe um, Alphabet's Google's thing. I, I don't know, but we know the common name of Apple. My point in saying that is that partnership of saying, look, we've paved the way for the network to be seamless and the partner of Apple saying, and we've got the right device, you know, and the iPod is a decent example of right device at the right time, you know, and that timing and market of, you know, affinity and finesse that matters. So everybody knows Steve jobs, probably fewer people know Stan Sigmund, but the combination, their partnership as leaders is probably a, it's an easy way to say we have the, BC and CE of mobility um, at that moment with that partnership. So tell us a little bit about the Sigmund lecture series, how you came to play a, le mm -hmm. a leadership role in it and what's coming up here sure. in the near future, who's the speaker mm -hmm. and, and any other special events you got going on. Yep. I would that. say that honestly, the straightest answer is it comes with the territory of working for the Dean. You know, I, I have some duties in the college where I work directly for the Dean and so trying to expand the opportunity, it led to conversations with um, 
a couple of really key retired executives from AT&T who are the core of the friends of Stan Sigmund. They've been the face of the friends. Um, and so we just said, what are ways for us to, to explore this opportunity? How can we really make, you know, the leadership, hopefully in the way I described it, it's really profound. You know, the, the innovations that Stan Sigmund pushed for and the industry has recognized him, by the way. So the wireless industry has absolutely recognized that leadership. It's not just because AT&T says so. Um, so the idea is, well, how can we give back? Well, let's see if we can't bring some thought leaders to campus and really for them to enjoy, and um, you know, this is where Stan came from. You know, I'll use their terms, not mine, but they said they're willing to basically say, no, we're disciples of Stan. They really thought the leadership and just the way he put together teams and drove teams and coaxed success out of people was really profoundly impactful to their lives. And you can tell by listening to them. So they're really genuinely motivated to come and share, to come and give back, to come and provide insights. So I would say, you know, ask how did I come to be, uh, and one note I put to myself is that I wouldn't be surprised if what I'm doing increasingly becomes the model for professorships on campus. You know, there's a lot of push for donors to look for tangible ROI. They really want to see their investment have value add just other than supporting, you know, our careers. So um, I've had other professorships on campus and I'm grateful for all of them. But this one has also opened up more experience and opportunity for me just in terms of really just interacting with these folks. They're very accomplished in business and just listening to their insights. So it's a good two-way street. And that's how I put it in my notes. So I would say that the executives want to come and honor Stan's legacy because the speaker series, they come and basically do about an hour long, you know, open to everybody um, talk on campus. And we'll be doing that again this year on October 12th. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's 10 in the morning. Um, but then they do have that curiosity, like what's special about here? Because Stan's special. And so they, 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 it's almost like a, you know, a little bit of a pilgrimage to say, wow, this is, you know, I mean, you know, I know that you're a, uh, route 66, um, specialist and, you know, there's an allure to, you know, the origin stories of, 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 you know, the lore surrounding that. So in their mind, I've definitely detected that, wow, this is, this is where Stan was developed, you know, what's going on here. So it, it's kind of fascinating to watch. And so, so who is the guest this year? Uh, this year um, we will have Jennifer Van Buskirk and she's the senior vice president of mid markets. I wasn't sure what that meant at first, but when I dug a bit more, it's very apropos and a good fit to frankly, some of those strategic developments in the college and the university. It's really focusing on small to mid-sized businesses. It's really saying like, how can, AT&T be a partner for them. So it's a real good fit. AT&T is clearly one of the biggest telcos in the world. And yet, interestingly, hardly any Gen Z students even know what those letters stand for. Mm -hmm. We got to be old like us mm -hmm. to, know, to know what it stands for. Right. Um, what are the benefits to our students from having this kind of interaction and mm -hmm. exposure? No, that's a good one. And there's really two answers. There's the face value answer I would give where I would say, um, well, look, it's a serious player in the Fortune 500, you know, and way up at the top end of the Fortune 500. But under the hood, I would say there's two important answers. One of them is sort of the characterizations of leadership I've been given. You know, we had Ralph De La Vega here um, in 2021 to kick off the series, and he's 
got a long track record of leadership in the industry. Um, Jeff McElfresh, which is a, um, a current chief operating officer, um, you know, lots of innovation. So it's the culture of leadership and innovation is one gift. But if you want to take the face value of why is this company important and why is it special, think about, so I, I did the math. They've been around as we would know it for 138 years. They've been at the forefront of every modern telecommunications innovation um, since then, right? So what are they? Things like telegraph, which is, you know, obviously existing, but then telegraph giving way to voice, you know, voice giving way to opportunities to be involved with radio uh, and tele telephony, right? And then increasingly as these networks become capable of transmitting digital information, then that sort of thing, right? So everything that's made life unlike it was before, particularly with keeping people and businesses connected, they've been there. So they've got a long history and, and it's um, arguably baked in. And that's, that's important. So the things that made life different today than 138 years ago, they were a player in the game at every step of the way. And it's really interesting. You mentioned telegraph because that's one of the T's in their name. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet who sends a telegraph? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and I made this point, but I think it's, it's profound, you know, so impactful and profound that in 1982, the federal government felt they had to break that up, you know, too big. Um, and I think that their innovation subsequent to that is, is worth noting, right. To basically say, well, what if you had to reinvent yourself? What if you had to still stay viable when, you know, if you had the market cornered, you know, your, your spark for innovation might be different, but if you have to go back and say, no, you got to get scrappy again. And, and that's the case. So, you know, that organizational longevity and maturity I'm alluding to, they operate in a market segment that remains profoundly impactful to daily life. These are good reasons, in my opinion, you know, and then the, every leader, um, and, and, um, Jennifer Van Buskirk, um, will have her own, you know, um, perspective and experience, but all of them, you can tell how shaping it is for these leaders as well. You know, you have a very serious part of daily life that you're responsible for. In spite of my, uh, seemingly professional assessment of the situation. I, I, I thought that AT&T made a mistake when they absorbed singular years ago and, and then changed the name of everything to AT&T mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I thought singular, man, that is a mm -hmm. great name. Mm -hmm. the spelling was unique. Mm -hmm. It could easily be trademarked mm -hmm. and nobody knows what AT&T mm -hmm. stands for. And that was more than a decade ago. No, it's interesting you say that. I and mean, it's actually a detail I have failed to interject. A lot of Stan's growth was with Singular. And so the truth is, is that he kind of uh, came full circle by that merger. And he, I mean, there's, I, I'm not going to do the story justice, so I'm not going to attempt it here. Um, but I know that that whole deal was, uh, he had a very serious hand in it, right? So, so it's funny you mentioned that. Um, it, he, he did not have a continuous, um, he had a, a start and a finish there, but he had other journeys along the way. So how do you see our relationship with AT&T and the lecture series continuing into the future? Um, that's pretty good. And I'll actually kind of com uh, combo that um, with another answer, another question I prepared for. <clears throat> um, it's important to realize that 
AT&T's ongoing um, innovation and, and really how they, they see themselves in the, in the future, I think really comports well with even how our college is trying to see itself in the future. There's a lot of what should we be next that actually we both have in common. Um, they have to continue to innovate in digital communications. Like a lot of companies, they've diversified their interests and portfolios. They all do seem a oneness. You know, most people are consuming shows via, you know, you know, wireless and digital communications and not, you know, necessarily through the cable. Even if you're getting it through the cable, the cable's just carrying your internet traffic for you to view it that way. So people's viewing habits have changed. Um, so that's still a real core for them, in my opinion. Um, but if you think about then that they've had a hard fought, hard won and difficult to maintain leadership, then the future, I think, for what does this relationship portend for us is actually more in that leadership area. So one of the things I didn't know that we're cooking, and I, I wouldn't want to do too many details, but just say we're looking at shorter term programs available to students and possibly even other folks like maybe the target audience would be AT&T folks themselves in um, leadership and innovation. And the idea would be there's plenty of case studies and then certainly there's plenty of academic knowledge to leverage to be focused on this problem. And so we're looking, you know, probably manifest as a certificate program, but certainly a space that a lot of higher education is still contemplating. Some aren't contemplating. They've rushed right on in. But I know it's probably been a conversation even in our own college across the years. That would have, um, I would imagine, benefits the students, AT&T, and just other interested technology leaders. You know, there's certainly, when people know that there are case studies that can really be learned from and sort of an environment to immerse yourself in to really, you know, get the insights, that's still valuable. Human insight is still valuable. Okay, let's uh, <clears throat> put put on your professor cap for mm -hmm. a moment and your tech guru. Mm -hmm. um, do you see anything beyond what we currently have with our smartphones and seemingly uh, ubiquitous internet access? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty much everywhere. We got mm -hmm. some dead spots, of course. Yeah. And we are a victim of our geography in some regards because we're <clears throat> such a big country mm -hmm. compared to smaller <clears throat> landlocked places. Um, I know it's hard to picture the future, but we all like to try and- mm -hmm. Surely somebody somewhere, maybe, maybe AT&T is working on the next big thing that will take what we have in our hand, mm -hmm. our pockets, our purses, and make them quaintly obsolete. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I'll speak to differently. I certainly don't want to speak to AT&T. I, I would, I, I would just be making it up. I don't know. Um, but the nature of this question is something we discussed before. So I, I had a good idea that we'd probably talk about it here. But I, hands down, what will shape our lives, let's say between now when I retire, and certainly between now when we both retire, it's, uh, it's the trifecta of artificial intelligence, particularly as manifested by machine learning, and particularly as manifested by natural language processing. There will be new and emergent human-machine competencies and capabilities not quite of, you know, um, you know, the science fiction type cyborg type of thing, but the only people that innovate and win would have to leverage the best of both. And that will, that will change everything just like mobility and computing has changed everything. And frankly, you know, the, that there's an accretion there, there's, there's, that's a cumulative effect, right? But, um, the, 
the faster, faster ability and, and sort of the statistical derivations that are possible in terms of making good guesses and increasingly reinforce good guesses at contextually what any piece of communication means and dropping into the intelligence to offer, you know, suggestions in fact. Yeah, that's it. And 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 I, I think there is no other it. So the importance of the device won't be you know, we're connected. You know, the Internet of Things is part and parcel of everything we've been talking about. But how that manifests in your ability to interoperate in markets and humans and organizations, that'll be it. We can't just turn on the switch and just say the AI is going to run it. You know, it's not a it's all not all problems are deterministic, like the process process control systems of like an autopilot. But we're not going back to there not being that. If I already used that, you know, metaphor from the skies, right? We're not going back to the airliners not having autopilots. And so that's definitely a human machine relationship there. You know, and I think that more and more that's that's the my answer to that. Hands down, by the way, no question. What I would say if I had to further characterize it, because I did prepare some notes here, I would say the way for us all to think about it is technology and computing is a second language. Um, you know, in the United States, the answer to what second language that you pick up is obviously Spanish. I mean, it's easy to tell just by the distribution of populations and speakers, but I can make the argument in every country, um, the real second language you did is technology. And I, I don't mean, look, I can look at TikToks on my phone. I don't mean that. I mean, it's what I mean by digital readiness. You need a fluency with that to be able to leverage that in meaningful, productive ways, ways that, you know, are profitable. And I don't just mean that from a market sense, you know, so I don't know if everybody has that, if we're pushing for it. It's not like, for instance, K through 12 responses in the past have been, let's get a computer in every classroom. Well, that's a, that's a prerequisite, but the presence of it isn't going to do it. It's really learning that and, and that, you know, our campus is going through this right now. And I know you've got some other things to talk about uh, d- down the pike that I think is on that topic, but that would be my hands down answer for those reasons. So everybody who has to design, create, or craft will be doing it with a fluency in technology as a second language. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that Stan Sigmund uh, and his, his life and work at AT&T brought about a whole lot of innovations, as well as the leadership of them. And, well, that's a theme that's going to appear in future Buff Speak episodes that you and I co-host. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm going to put a plug in here, um, invite everybody to not just tune into all of our regular episodes, but especially watch out for these special ones because we're going to dive deep into the leadership of innovations. After the break... We're going to dive into one of the biggest innovations to come along mm-hmm. in a long time, one that has some people divided into the worried and scared camp mm-hmm. and the others into the let's get this party started camp. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, Our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. 
And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. You would almost have to be living in a cave the last nine months not to know about chat GPT and artificial intelligence, or as it is known, colloquially AI. Uh, ChatGPT is just one among many machine learning programs that is constantly amassing knowledge by scouring the deepest recesses of the internet, kind of like Google routinely does with its search engine. It's just that ChatGPT and its competitors are designed to write text, with some even going so far as to produce audio and video and art that are completely created by the machine itself. Jeff, in a nutshell, what do you know about ChatGPT? I know that I've actually, um, shockingly, barely toyed with it. And the idea is I'm not, I know enough about what it's doing to not want to be impressed by it. I'll explain what I mean. So what they're really doing is working off of lang large language models. At some point along the way, um, since teaching here, by the way, not so much in the early parts of my career, I've been interested in um, natural language processing. Um, machine learning is oftentimes, at the end of the day, you think about this, we have systems of human communication. They're typically then captured by utterances we would make. And there's rules to the syntax and grammar of those utterances. Typically, contextually, uh, if I put... If I ask somebody out on the commons here, you know, just out here on campus, um, some type of question and I assimilated a thousand answers, then I start to give a good sense. I start to get a good sense of the variance between the answers, but basically there's meaning positions inside the answers. So semantic, there's a semantic component to the, each of these. But at the end of the day, I can't go the last mile to really know what you mean, but I can kind of get a statistical model of semantic reasoning behind what you're saying and probably offer an answer, particularly if I can corroborate that with a lot of other texts. So they really rely on texts, but natural language processing relies on parts of speech. Now, the reason it's magic and give you answers is because it's basically going to say, you know, the odds of you asking these words in this order comports with this set of knowledge. And the truth is, is that it, it's usually the case that if I answer you this way, um, this is going to be the answer. So the simpler, more structured the question is, the more accurate the answer. The more emergent, you know, uh, subjective, let's say, the answer is, it'll just give you the best guess. Problem with that is that that has a a, a bad recycling problem. And what I mean by that is we don't have growth in concepts from that. It's going to be great at giving you quick answers to long accumulated concepts, but emerging concepts, well, it doesn't have enough data. So, you know, a true artificial intelligence would be, you know, out of science fiction still. However, these shorten the distance to 
recall with best guess as in statistically highly probable that this is the right answer. The only way you can do that, though, is to harvest a lot. Some of the issues we're going to run into is going to be, well, do you have permission to harvest all that? So it's not like AI is anything new, of course, because machines have been learning about their human counterparts for years. Uh, Every morning when I hop in the van, for example, without me even asking, Apple Maps pops up and tells me that, oh, there's light traffic and I'll arrive at WT in nine minutes. How did it know that? Mm -hmm. Well, because it knows my my rhythm Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I leave about nine Mm o'clock and I always go to the same place. So therefore, it concludes that, well, he must be going there again. Let's let's check out the traffic and give him an ETA. That's pretty smart. Um, And it does the same thing when I walk out the building and go to my van. It says, oh, you got 10 minutes going home. And it's usually because there's more traffic on 23rd Street in the afternoon then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google Maps knows my frequent queries, especially when I'm out of town. I I go into Google Maps, uh, enter the search function and type the word Thai, and it finishes the sentence for me, Thai food near me, because mm-hmm. it knows I ask that a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just go, goes ahead and, and, and figures out that's what he wants for dinner again. Mm-hmm. And so it gives me the options there. Uh, even just the Google search engine likes to finish mm-hmm. your sentence for mm-hmm. you. It's almost like your, you know, your spouse. Mm-hmm. After you know them a while, you can finish their sentences for them. And Google's kind of like that. Um, Spotify. Oh, I love their DJX, their uh, their AI disc jockey. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got on board with it last May. It gives me uh, an audience of one experience with, an, with a true AI interface that talks to me, addresses me by name, gives me commentary on music, says... This is something you were listening to back in 2019, and and then here are some other artists like it. That's pretty cool, but mm-hmm. that's all machine learning. But why is it that chat GPT suddenly got everybody's attention and started making people scared? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> the uh, I believe when, um, and I don't know if this is England or the U.S., but I believe at the um the 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 more meteorically rising parts of the industrial revolution there was quite a bit of uh menial work that was clearly automatable and then we can take that all the way up to the crisis of auto manufacturing in Detroit and the Japanese coming in and you know the auto manufacturing being permanently changed by robotics for real simple repetitive tasks the question is that in knowledge work, so let's kind of say, quote unquote, white collar work, which should, we should pay attention because one would make the argument that the higher education that we're making available in not all cases, but in many cases leads to that. So what are the redundancies and increased capabilities made possible by this in sort of the knowledge work slash white collar realm? The fear would be is that, you know, you really, it's, it's the who moved my cheese thing. You get really used to it. Now the question goes back to, are there still humans involved in manufacturing? Yes. Are there still humans involved in auto manufacturing? Yes. Are there still humans involved in the airplane example I gave you? Because they're perfectly capable of, you know, the amount of times that people are really touching the controls or under five minutes usually, you know, depending, but 
So my point is, is you're scared because it's change. That's why in earlier I said you need technology as a fluency. What I don't think I quite said earlier is that subject matter expertise matters quite a bit. But any types of jobs where the human had to kind of get in and, and use our own sense making and brain and mental capacity to do things that were sort of menial, but still in the value chain of knowledge work. And we have to be careful because this isn't going to solve complex problems, although it will statistically derive everything you described makes life more wonderful. But you're right. A little bit of habit data from you versus a lot of profiling trends from a lot of other data suggests that they'll get it right. My, my Apple car thing does the same thing. It basically exactly. Oh, I, it showed me going home and going to school. It was the only two things I really had programmed in there. And the truth is, is because yeah, it's about that time. Seems like you're in habit. If I make the trip on a Saturday or sometime off hours, it's not doing it. So it's going to be looking for patterns of the expected and getting in and saving that time and effort. The The problem would be, well, what's next? And I, I said it. I think that the subject matter expertise we wire in, or at least encourage our students to wire into themselves, that matters. I don't know if the subject matter expertise wrought by a number of GPT prompts is the answer, although there is a job description out there called prompt engineer now, which says then there are better and worse ways of asking. There are better and worse ways of searching. So what the cart and the horse is, well, how much subject matter expertise you can probably formulate wonderful prompts for things you know a lot about. I don't know if we can just say, put the freshman in front of GPT and it's going to come out. It needs context. It needs the right. Now, your behavior is like, I like to listen to this, you know, like the, you might like this music. Those are pretty low order algorithms. However, somebody's gone in there and done the annotations. This is still true of even GPT. Somebody's doing the annotations to occasionally correct the machine learning. So machine learning needs guidance. And so without the guidance, it can come up with silly stuff. So even this, I need a picture I forget what technology it is, but I'm, I need a picture of the, um, what is that? The American Gothic, you know, the gentleman with the pitchfork and his wife and it's his and, daughter, by the way, is it? Oh, yeah. I, the Lordy, I know everybody <laughs> thinks it's his wife. <laughs> well, I mean, but the idea is that, you know, there are, um, visual motifs of color and shape and all that, and you'll get pretty close. That's why the whole deep fakes thing or all that, but they all require existing context. So. Uh, I'll still rest in the answer I gave earlier. Subject matter expertise with fluency and technology as your second language. I don't think you're anything to be scared of, but in the classic who've moved my cheese thing, well, yeah, but maybe some things that the automation can do for you, you're probably not doing, particularly when it's very deterministic type of work, right? Like, you know, let's see, let's get a routine that suggests that Dr. Gerlich, you know, is going to work today. I don't need people to get involved anymore with that sort of thing. Well, I can see how some folks would have legitimate reason to be afraid. Um, this year has been marked by strikes by both the Screenwriters Guild and the SAG-AFTRA union. And they're not just striking about better pay, but also their concerns over AI being used to create scripts and books, mm -hmm. as well as uh, developing deep fakes using synthetic voices and other likenesses of actors. I mean, we're getting really far into intellectual property, which includes your personage. Um, 
AI could feasibly relieve someone of their job, of, of their job of being themselves. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on this? Yeah, there's no question. And <clears throat> it depends on how, I, I guess I used the word previously, how um, well understood or deterministic are um, the expected outputs. So one could lament a sameness in a lot of the media we consume. And so that's that kind of um, uh, echo chamber, for want of a better term, of you'll just start to water down the magic of variation and surprise. So if you need pretty much expected canned answers, like I've always lamented just as a person living in the society, I'm not interested in these comic book movies because they're just retread of existing ideas. So if you're comfortable in being replaced by retread and existing ideas, then that's fine. But there is a market for that. There's a market for the predictable. You know, you go off to, uh, um, I can share personal experience, maybe you had it. Sometimes you're in a, in a different country, although today the magic you're describing lets you find Thai food anywhere, but sometimes there's the, there's the comfort and the familiar. Oh, there's a McDonald's there. I mean, it's a cop out to go to McDonald's in France, but it's the familiar pattern. So as long as there's a marketplace for familiar patterns or basically, you know, let's get the perspective of Professor Gerlich because he's just going to give a pretty pat answer to a simple question. Yeah, of course you're, you know, yeah, we can have the automaton Professor Gerlich, but having to explore new territories where we have to do some extrapolations. Now the true AI is meant to do that, but we're not there yet, but we have a whole revolution to go through of this thing shaking everything out, right? A whole revolution to go through of, all right, well, things that are pretty simplistic. You know, the running joke now is when you do GPT to kind of give you some um, answers to programming problems, right? They'll give you them, but sometimes the answer is a complete mismatch. So the better you are at doing the prompt engineering, but then that's the full circle to, then you have to have some context. So providing services where there's really pretty well-known avenues. So if we're going to say, now the, I see your problem though, what you're really raising is that, do I start having what seems like you speak different things? The issue you talk about with the writers and actors is profound and, and, and good on them because it comes down to this with, they're called large language models, maybe large learning models, depending on what you read, but it requires a hefty large volume of antecedent information to develop these models from. And if it's basically fast food outputs, you know, known set outputs. So the problem would be is if a lot of them are creating more or less the same type of shtick over and over again, and yet still demand to get paid for it, I don't blame them. But the question becomes whose intellectual property is that? And that's how you raised it. I was asked to serve um, uh, on a committee on the campus this um, summer um, just to kind of debate or at least consider these issues. And um, that was my contribution. I don't, I think we haven't even seen the beginnings of the intellectual property law. And I know that the fallback would be, well, you consented to this EULA or that EULA, but that actually has a good chance of blowing those EULAs up because it could basically say, you're going to need more consent than that. Because you can't just basically cover every, in, you know, you can't fully indemnify based on that. There's a lot of, because of the DCMA and things like that, I noticed that, for instance, that's a big deal because the college campus would have been 
a very serious, you know, point of contact for things like um, Napster way back when, right? Which is what really kind of launched all that. Well, the problem would be, sure, but what about then everything we've ever said or written? Because anything we say can we can be transcribed if you have a recording of it, right? Well, who is is that? How much of it is free? How can you delineate it? Now, people like OpenAI are at least building a confession component into what they're doing. As in, you know, oh, yes, that probably came from me. But I don't think we've begun to explore the margins. So do these um, actors and writers have standing to bring some type of suit? That's the real question. Because if you can't get redress and protection from the law, then it's just all free for all. Uh, I saw on the news recently that some major media outlets have also banned chat, chat GPT, it, not just in their newsrooms, but co- completely on their corporate campuses. And they've even blocked uh, GPT bot, the web crawler that mm-hmm. chat GPT uses, uh, that's out there constantly, you know, amassing mm-hmm. more knowledge. So basically what they're trying to do is protect their intellectual property by keeping this web crawler out of mm-hmm. their servers mm-hmm. where all this information is stored. Uh, but but don't search engines already do the same thing when they crawl the web? You know, it's funny. They do, but they're largely, uh, a search engine is trying to say it is. It's getting a semantic affinity. But the difference is it's not processing it, processing it to the to our knowledge. It's not been processing it for I'm going to develop then a large um, learning, uh, natural language learning model that basically starts to do um, statistical probability on given this query, it probably means this answer. It is a progression. I completely agree with you. It's a progression, which means that anybody in that space won't have a hard time getting into that space. But they did not claim, or at least they did not available to you, they would direct you to the source. Now, that source might have been just copy pasting or stealing from elsewhere, but they were just the broker. Now, if they wanted to be arbiter of answers, the same as it is true in the code world. Um, there's a product that GitHub has out, and that's a big part of what we'd use in, in our, in my neck of the woods. And GitHub's just a, a place to have, a, it's a peer in a protocol meant to be able to store code and share code with others. They just create this biggest peer in the world, if you will. But they now have oodles upon oodles of both private and public code repositories. And so they offer a for money uh, a service, just like, you know, these GPTs, they're going to be for money, um, you know, for a fee. And it really becomes, well, do you own that? Now, what they're going to come back and say, well, you've been parking it there, but they're going to fall back on the defense. But I don't know if any of this stuff has really been tested. This is the next level. So one way around this is to, don't park anything anywhere in source code. But what's interesting is that if we didn't park source code anywhere, the whole open source premise would die and we wouldn't be in the IT infrastructure and posture we're in today without it. Just full stop. None of the things you rely on in your daily life would exist without open source. Even the big dogs all have their hands deep into that. So the genie's out of the box and the question becomes, they're making a right point. Do you have a right? You know, you post your lectures, so do I. I, I make videos where I put them, um, um, what is that, unlisted out on YouTube. Well, YouTube has them, right? And they've already done sense making of them. Do they have a right to? 
if we all pull out of the commons, you know, this is the tragedy of the commons. If we all pull out of the commons, do the other advantages of daily life dissipate with them? You know, do they basically freeze in time in 2023? The word will move on. And so the question becomes, do they have a right to do this and how much consent do they get? I'll tell you who leads in this. And so I give hope for this. The United States doesn't lead in this, but the European Union does in terms of protecting people with privacy, all these sorts of things. So I'm hoping to see what they'll do. I don't give, I mean, no offense, it's my country that I grew up in, but I don't give us as long odds as I would the European Union to say, you can't do this. You know, the whole, um, I have the right to get my data back out from you thing. And like the really much higher aggression of, do you accept all cookies when you go to a website? That's from the European Union. It's not from the United States. I recently put chat GPT to the test. I wanted to see what it could do to try to duplicate me. And um, well, I found out it's got some shortcomings. It's got a little way to go. I had written a blog for my students about the return of pumpkin spice lattes, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, a seasonal mm-hmm. rite of passage, if yes. you will. And so I instructed chat GPT to write a blog about the return of PSLs and to do it in the style of Professor Nick Gerlick. And then I even gave it my Tumblr address where it could go study thousands of blogs I have written before. And it could find me on SoundCloud, too, for the audio versions of these. And, you know, in less than a minute, it came back with this real pithy uh, piece on the return of, of the PSL, of course. But it, it opened with greetings, my loyal readers. Well, I would never write mm-hmm, like this. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I posted it on my Facebook and and, a, and one person said, it sounds like they've been watching Bridgerton. You know, mm-hmm. the, the English sounded about 200 years mm-hmm, old. Mm-hmm. I never speak mm-hmm. that way. So I felt good. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, there's not going to be a deep fake of me yet. It maybe. doesn't have enough data. Right. The more it had, but however, I think... Human expression, whether it be innovation and leadership, like we we're just talking about, or art or any other thing, they're about the utilization of surprise, the pivot in the moment. You know, they teach, for instance, in, in, in militaries, the leadership is to obviously understand all the set pieces and how we typically apply force and all that. But, you know, as a commentary, you know, and this is this is not as easy as it's going to come across, but so what is it? Why has the Ukrainian armed forces transformed since 14? And, you know, the jury will be out on that. You know, people will be talking about that for forever to come, military historians. But there would be, well, what is the amount of discretion to act in the moment and in surprise down there at the, you know, as closest to the point of battle as possible, non-commissioned officers and things like that? Well, I use that as an example to say, the algorithm can guess at you. It doesn't have enough. So it's going to sound kind of wonky to you. But the real question is that how wonky is that going to sound to other people? The people giving the feedback know it's not quite you because they know you. The person that doesn't know you, it's not going to make any real egregious errors of construction. So there's a lot of people who are going to be able to improve the baseline of their output. I mean, I've experienced this in personal life, professional life recently. The baseline of passable almost their output is made possible for a lot of folks here and wouldn't have been the case folks that aren't quite good at expressing themselves can get a real good advantage 
and then go from there. So that's a good to your point of why should be people afraid. But I'm not worried about you being deep faked because I know you. The real question is you being deep faked is not. The only real answer to this is what you see in the strike. Aggressive action up front. I, I've used chat GPT and Bard. Um, that's Google's uh, mm-hmm. uh, Me Too product uh, mm-hmm. a lot in the last nine months. And I have noticed many times they're they're far from perfect that they mm-hmm. deliver factual mm-hmm. errors. In fact, I even asked Bard back in the spring uh, to, to write uh, like a 500 word essay on uh, the history of Route 66. It would be a very brief history, of course. But in those 500 words, it came back with three glaring errors. Mm-hmm. That I, I I posted on a, a Facebook group and people just jumped all over and of course lots of ha ha faces and all sure, that sure because sure. it was it was a, they were egregious right. errors but veracity has always been a problem of knowledge and demonstrating knowledge veracity comes down to basically maybe academic dishonesty people not even doing the work misattributions failure to attribute so. You know, I know that uh, maybe we do too. I'm embarrassed. I don't know this, but you know, Veritas appears in quite a few mottos for quite a few institutions of higher learning. I don't know if we have it, but I think we might. Truth. And they don't have to be perfect. I don't think we'd want to assess students on perfection, but this is another resource, another layer available to them. I mean, look, let's just think about, I was a student once and I wasn't a particularly good undergraduate student, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, students are always going to be looking for shortcuts. I think that's human of them, right? So our job is maybe being their their guides or coaches in their development would be, okay, great. Now, if it's just straight out, you know, dishonesty, that's what I'm talking about. But you, they need to be coached into how does this become a tapestry of your ability to speak to what you've shown me? And so I think gone are the days, by the way, I give them a prompt that they can just GPT. I can't do that anymore. I Now they have to take the time and I have to take the time if I'm being honest to them. In my mind, and this has become more so across my years of teaching and being, being in higher education, I owe a debt to the five years out them, not the today them. And the debt to the five years out to them is not them to go out there and be embarrassed or at least, you know, resent their education because they had to completely s- supplement the growth that maybe we didn't force upon them. Right. And that's why you have, you know, assignments and, and rules and points and all that. It's forcing some performance and appraisal and growth. I don't think I can just say, tell me about, you know, I don't know, um, the war of 1812. I'm going to get a GPT answer. We probably already have been <clears throat> discuss and defend the points that we made. So increasingly I can't see how we can't return to what's old is new again. FaceTime. I need you to speak to me and or an audience of your peers to convince me in direct real-time human rhetoric that you have some grasp of this. Lacking that, we're kidding ourselves, in my opinion. And in my world, that's more like demonstrate you have a code artifact and actually explain it and convince me you actually did make this and know how it works. See, there's a lot, there are a lot of burdens here. Um, as a professor using ChatGPT, I have to check the output to make sure it's true, but it's not as hard for the professor because, well, I mean, when it comes to marketing, I know what I know. I have a really good idea and I have a pretty good idea what I don't know. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yes. And yeah. There's always a risk of, I don't know what I don't no. know. Yeah. Uh, but as a, as a seasoned professor, I mean, I've been here forever. Mm-hmm. That gets smaller and smaller yeah. over time. But for my students, though, right. what they don't know that they don't know is still pretty big. And if they submit a paper that is just pure hogwash created by chat GPT, what's a professor to do other than fail them? Yeah, that's correct. You know, and so, but basically we need the, but that's why I think why are the universities now explicitly putting a GPT policy in there? So if you're going the middle ground, which is the most difficult ground, which is the substantiate and all that, that's probably a better part of the growth. I don't know about the anything goes, but maybe there's a, a, a educational reasons why free for all might work out. You know, I, there's some, I always thought it's a university because the universe of uh, human endeavor is presumably, um, you know, under the roof, all collectively trying to, you know, share that progress. But I don't know. What's interesting is that you don't need to come to the university, and this has been true for quite a while. The font of all knowledge is not here. The process of becoming is still pretty, you know, we, we're, we've gotten pretty sophisticated at that. I don't know if industry is ready to pick up that mantle in all cases. In places where you have deep professionalization, like law and medicine, uh, we're going to run out here. <laughs> <laughs> we're going into overtime. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's okay. Yeah. yeah but you can, uh, um, we can edit that down yeah. if it's too much. Yeah. Well, speaking in terms of broader society, um, what role do you think AI will play in our future? I mean, oh, are, the, are the machines coming after us or yeah, will we all be able to survive together? This is the thing of science fiction, right? Um, the Terminator, that sort of thing. I don't know. Most innovations have revolutionary followed by just a lot of evolutionary movement. You know, um, everything we've just been discussing is all thrown up in the air, but subject matter expertise, people wanting to innovate, people wanting to lead and discover, let's just make that easier on them. Um, and you know, the, the litmus test will be how much of this stuff passes muster, how far up the career you know, ladder and or, you know, let's say it's never been easier to have entrepreneurial dreams. It's probably never been, you know, just as easy for them to be crushed. But how far can you get being illegitimate? Now, this should help you become more effective in your in your journey to legitimacy. And I believe that. But in and of itself, eventually this would be as cheapy and throwaway as anything. And people will sniff it. But Markets have to decide this. You know, I can intellectualize it talking to you all I want. If markets decide that a bunch of people prompt engineering and getting a bunch of answers out, um, I don't know when the saturation point will come and will people say, that's just some fake AI, AI stuff I'm not interested. But it's all new and marvelous now. So everybody thinks, you know, as many fanciful ideas as you can possibly entertain, they, we don't have any data to say how real or unreal that's going to be. After the break, we'll take a look into the crystal ball with Dr. Babb and try to get a peek at where all this technology is taking us. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. 
For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. When I was a kid, I watched the Jetsons. In many regards, um, I felt like I was seeing the future. And, and in many regards, not all of them, mind you, they were pretty prescient. I mean, they, they did a great job of picturing what the future might be like. Yeah, we still don't have flying cars. And while we may not have a Rosie the Robot running around our house cooking dinner and doing everything, we still have our Roombas. At least they're helping out. What are your thoughts on the Jetsons and, and the peak into the future that they were trying to provide back in the early 60s? Mm-hmm. I'm actually, regrettably, I'm going to go dark on you. Um, I'll throw into the mix um, 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. Those are actually more real because generally all tools of communication do is amplify and exacerbate the best and worst of who we are and what we are. Those were light fare and they, they peak imagination. And, you know, we have electric cars and we have plenty of things that are getting us, you know, I always think that our iPhones are like, um, you know, um, getting closer and closer to Scotty beam me up. Although I wish we could beamed up because the air travels awful. Yeah, I would do it. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I think that people can see extrapolate into the future, but the people with the greatest gift in doing that understand that they're extrapolations of the human condition, which is why I'm not going to give up on well-intended, well-informed people leveraging these tools to get the job done, to get ahead, to realize their dreams, to fulfill objectives are still going to be there. And these are just the... Um, this is the carriage, right? All these advantages are the carriage and it's just getting easier and easier. You know, we can drive down to Dallas, like no, you know, nobody's business. That would have been a multi-day journey in previous iterations of the carriage, right? So it's just a carriage. There will be, um, um, it won't suffer fools lightly in the long run. Technology innovations rarely do. Um, And there'll be, you know, some people will be, caught out by these things um, um, and, and some innocence will be caught out by these things. So I gave you a darker answer, but um, I think those are just as likely. That just means that the spectrum of the human condition will have to internalize and comprehend these innovations. They are innovations of meaning and human communication. The problem is, is that you can get pretty good approximations of meaning that would pass casual tests. When does expertise come in and when does it start to matter? I don't know, for instance, as a thought experiment, I don't know if we're anywhere near saying, I'm going to go have a medical procedure and the person operating it will GPT their way through it. That's a, it's a crazy example, right? So, but in terms of the rest of devices and innovation, I think the, the, the Jetsons um, and all those sorts of things, I know you mentioned um, the Roombas and all that, that's just basically people to see and, you know, they become self-fulfilling prophecies. Wouldn't it be cool if, and then the innovators and the leaders say, Yes, it would be, and I'm going to make it happen. Well, I mean, Dick Tracy had mm-hmm. his fancy watch, and mm-hmm. now look. And I, I got one on. and, and I know. don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I, I, I love the fact that that's a part of the telecommunication infrastructure that I can wear. You know, and then people foresaw that, you know, that, you know, and then is that cyborging? Well, not quite, but, you know, it's a, it's a person-machine assemblage, which is what we've been talking about throughout this whole 
discussion. Well, in, in both my undergrad and MBA digital marketing courses, I require that my students in the first week to watch a 1967 film called Year 1999 AD. Hmm. If you want to watch it, you can uh, just go to YouTube and punch that in, Year 1999 AD. It's a 21-minute look at the home and lifestyles at, at what they thought would occur at the end of the 20th century, as seen from 1967. And in so many regards, they hit the nail right on the head from multiple household computers and screens to online learning, online banking, online shopping, even menu management, fitness and health, all these things. And keep in mind, this was even before the internet. Uh, ARPANET didn't happen until 1969. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this preceded that by two years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there were some misses. There were some very cringeworthy moments like, well, you know, the continued diminishment of women, which that's all they knew at the time. Mm -hmm. But we we can snicker at that now, of course. And, and, and they missed the fact that computing would get smaller and smaller as well as more powerful. The, the computers and screens that they were using in their homes were gigantic compared to mm -hmm. what we have today. But they still hit the nail on the head on everything else. Jeff, what do you make of these quaint prognostications of the future? And should someone be making new versions of that film today? Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the new version would be outstanding, although I'm, I'm afraid it would be darker. There was something about, um, um, uh, there was a more, I think there was a temperament, and it largely had to do with the drastic changing of the world order. And let's call it, it easily the 20 years subsequent to the conclusion of the Second World War. Although the Cold War had loomed then, so I don't want to make it sound like it's all, you know, roses. The truth is, is that I think the palpable threat of, you know, duck and cover, the palpable threat of the bomb's going to blow up and wipe us out was, was there. But hand in hand with that was a lot of optimism for the future, I would say. And therefore, more concrete prognostications into the future. I think once you're swimming in it, you know, I always think of, um, here's my prognostication. I always think of the movie WALL-E and everybody's corpulent and well attended to not particularly having to be intellectual and presumably content, right? And the cost of that was, of course, a, a vanquished and uh, um, vacated world. I mean, it's, it's real heady stuff. It's real values-laden stuff, but... The human condition is to aspire to that. You know, there's the whole um, concept of guaranteed um, um, universal income or something like that. Just saying, hey, we got so much technology. Why get in the rat race? Just have enough to survive. You know, that sort of thing, right? So I think you know, Rogers has um, a, a book called The Diffusion of Innovation. You talk about ARPANET. You're right. That's a demarcation point that people agree to. But the lead up and the environment that's sort of supporting the desire for that lead up certainly drives how innovators will innovate beyond just like one laboratory. So we can put a finger on, of course, DARPANET's there to make sure that, you know, communications aren't disrupted by the nuclear holocaust, to be honest. I mean, the, the interstate system is there to make sure that we can have conveyance for military hardware, given that'd be a disruption in any one place. I mean, a lot of this is wrought by sort of dark things, but... Um, I would say in the, in the interest of Rogers and the diffusion of innovation, um, there's a ramp up to it. And these days, maybe the ramp is quicker and more of a cliff, 
But there's always this, you know, the imagination precedes the innovation almost universally. Will we ever have enough innovation? I mean, will will we reach the point where we have everything we need that things are good enough? Or? Well, that's the Wally. Yeah, I mean, thing I answered. Or you. is that <laughs> is this force that you know once we unleash it, that genie out of the bottle mm -hmm. metaphor you've given, will this be a force that is forever with us? Somebody always trying to go one better. Yeah, I think that's the human condition, right? I mean, I mean if we want to continue to extrapolate from science fiction, well, that's the Wally um, um, narrative as well, off planet, all that sort of thing, you know. And there's still. That captures imagination. Let's do Mars. You know, um, uh, India put um, a uh, some type of vehicle on one of the poles of the moon in the last month. I mean, there's still that aspiration. And so I think humans have a frontier orientation. And technology has and always will remain a vehicle or a carriage for getting out of that frontier. Talk about frontier. It pervades the local culture, right? This is a part of the expansion of the frontier and then technology kind of in the background and validated the need for that level of expansion but it this the cultivation of this particular area of the country was really close to that and so the frontier mentality pervades and remains with the culture um, and the broader culture of the united states in particular you know so as long as there is a territory to get to then somebody innovate towards it and you know the boundary is as far as the Hubble or whatever the the new best telescope, the James Webb telescope, I don't know which one it is, will let us see out there. And so that's, you know, that's the logical conclusion to me, particularly since your theme is this, the, what, you know, how fun it's been for popular culture to extrapolate into the future and the, the technologies they're envisioning, will they come to fruition? Yeah, sure. They have so far. There are huge consumer implications. Mm -hmm. I mean, iPhone 15 is going to have new features, mm -hmm. new bells, new whistles, mm -hmm. new higher price tag. Mm -hmm. uh, my iPhone 12 still works mm -hmm. and it's just recently paid off. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. But by golly, I'll probably be ponying up the money, mm -hmm. extending my contract however long. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, it's an annuity for, yeah, yeah, for yeah, AT&T. Yeah, yes. Here we are but, circling back because mm -hmm. that's where I buy it. Um, I'm just going to be paying them however many bucks a month for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I'll have, you know, a fairly mm -hmm. recent phone here that I hope is going to make my life better. But hey, there are, there are some other things out there. I mean, it's not just fake meat like uh, Beyond and Impossible. Now there's lab meat mm -hmm. that is really, it's really meat. It's not a veggie mm -hmm. burger. It's lab meat. Mm -hmm. But it's grown in a lab, didn't grow on four hooves or anything mm -hmm. like that. That's kind of scary. Oh, and, and then what about driverless cars? Mm -hmm. It's only scary to you in, in the contemporary context. Uh, a lot of the students we said hello to this fall were born after 9-11, certainly born in this century. They don't have this other context. So how do you know in 30 years the context of what you just said about meat a loaded statement to say in this part of the right the country, to be honest. But you know, to to, to continue the thought experiment, um, it's all contextualized as to what's normal in your era. You know, I've I've often heard it said, um, maybe we don't live long enough. You know, the idea is to um, maybe see through eras of innovation because you have your own personal life cycle and you have the innovation of your era. But nostalgia tends to cling to 
human sentiments, human lived experience, right? What that enables in our connections with other people. However, nostalgia of the modern communication age, and there's a big market for it, goes back to what thoughts and concepts were delivered by media that surrounded you. And you talk about the Jetsons and whatnot. That's actually very much a reflection of what the media fabric looked like at the time. The media fabric of today is not that. And so it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I hear you, but I don't think, I don't know if people from students, let's just do the thought experiment that they'll still be freshmen 50 years from now, because this is a 113 year institution, almost as old as AT&T and survived a significant number of world changes, you, you name it. And yet the, the momentum, you know, the core gravity of this is the thing you do and this is a worthwhile thing. I have to imagine, you know, when we had, I don't know, the ability to make Xerox copies that people said, oh, that's it. It's all over. Or, you know, so it hasn't been. And so I know that's a little bit of a stray from what you would ask, but the context is like when you walk out the north side of the building here, there's a time capsule they planted in um, at the Centennial, I think. Um, and to be open, you know, and they'll think it's quaint, but they'll see the humanity in it, but their context would be completely different. I mean, who knows? I mean, there were students on this campus in 1910. I have to imagine there'll be students on this campus and whatever today plus 50 is. I, I understand the need to keep innovating, to keep creating new material. I mean, it's, it's what keeps the Rolling Stones alive. I mean, here we are <laughs> 61 years later and they're still creating new music. Uh, Pete Townsend's the guy who's got to eat his words. I hope I die before I get old. I don't think he hopes he dies. <laughs> yeah, they've got to keep going. There's money to be made. Yeah. What types of innovations do you think we will see in our lifetime? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'll give a different answer because I'm not, I'm not actually as innovation gadgety as you might think. I, I love, I suppose one of the reasons I'm a professor in information systems is I love the human dynamic in technology. In fact, I love teaching programming and I've always tried to vie to stay in it because it's a very creative expression. It's human intention manifested through technology. It's shaping and wielding it. I'm actually going to fall back on, it's a bit of a cop-out, but something I said earlier, the innovation I would love is that it's normative in our society that everybody has a true and meaningful fluency in technology as a second language. That's great. You know, and earlier you mentioned how this is really all about change. And I, I love talking about change. My classes have have a subtext and it's change every time mm -hmm. because we live in a constant sea of change. And that's especially true in marketing and, and technology too. You know, we, you wake up in the morning and it's a different world. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have long had a name for those who are resistant to technological change. We call them Luddite. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a pejorative term mm -hmm. we've used for a long time, but it's always relevant. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you reconcile the rapid rate of tech change with those who either simply cannot or will not allow all of that change into their lives? I, I mean, mm -hmm. there, there are people for whom going cashless is anathema. And mm -hmm. here we have Taco Bell wanting to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are those for whom ordering online is an alien concept and even streaming TV mm -hmm. is, is beyond their, their grasp. How do we begin to accommodate such people or do we just mm -hmm. ignore them? Well, change is disruption. Disruption is uncomfortable. Different, there are different attitudes towards discomfort. Um, 
sometimes people will say, well, no, I'm just more traditionalist. Well, there's a, there's a, um, a, a, a security or predictability or, and therefore maybe sources of strength in that, but innovations are going to happen. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because then sometimes people can really orbit for long periods of time, the same status quo of an innovation. So I actually give another military example. I guess that's a side interest I have. It just interests military history. The, 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 the personal soldier's weapon barely changed from Napoleon times to the civil war. And then, so you get these long periods of people becoming used to certain innovations. And then other times where you have rapid change and other innovations, like how we mediate and moderate and, and um, otherwise use channels for our communication and meaning and whatnot. So change is uncomfortable and therefore it's sometimes easier to characterize change is bad and not all change is good change wrought by innovation. You know, it really has to do with well, what does that disturb in your life? What does that enable? And a lot of this ha is, has to do with, you know, um, maintaining desired parts of the social fabric. And so when you get systems of controlling and regulating that, and then you have some new innovation that's perturbative to that, it's usually the innovation is outstretching our ability to contain or to comprehend it, which I'm going to go back to the GPT and intellectual property rights. It's far, you know, and the people putting it together know this, but innovation usually is about, I want to build a better mousetrap or make life better, but it's also, I want to make a market I can thrive in because there's nothing like a new market to get rich on. You know, the, the top of the fortune 500 are there because of innovations and they've displaced people who are really in older markets. You know, poking a hole in the ground and extracting resources out of it was a big deal. And that's not that long ago that people figured that out. So that's old thing, you know, doing finance and all the things that's old stuff, getting rich off of computers and how they connect to make things different. That's what all the tops of the fortune 500 is now. And you know, what will they be supplanted by? Well, everybody's betting on AI and they're betting on AI. I mean, that's a, you want to talk about an arms race. That's the arms race right now. AI. Our guest today has been Dr. Jeffrey Babb, the Stan Sigmund professor here in the College of Business. Jeff, give us your best plug for the upcoming Sigmund lecture series. Um, it's really powerful for students to be able to hear and understand a leader's journey. They didn't just wake up and become the powerful, successful people that's talking to you. They had to take one foot at a time and make a lot of decisions on a day by day, month by month, hearing their story and actually getting the opportunity to listen to their story and step up to the mic and ask a question that's extremely valuable in a way that I don't think every student fully understands. Not that they're incapable of understanding, but they have internalized just how important moments like that can be very pivotal. You can hear the right phrase or the right, you know, um, um, perspective and the right interaction with somebody and have that create a spark that leads you off in a direction. And so the beauty of college campuses across my comprehension of them has been that nexus for experience, for insight. And so we're offering that as these executives, in this case, this year, Jennifer Van Buskirk, who are coming here. So basically, Jennifer, what she has to offer is, you know, a wonderful set of experiences of becoming a leader 
becoming a leader in a technology uh, and communication um, an innovative um, technology and communication comp- company as a woman. And somebody who actually, her, with her professional experience, is increasingly looking at how can small to medium-sized enterprises and even maybe smaller communities benefit from, you know, how can they tap into innovation? So for all those reasons, I think it'd be something not to miss. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.